This morning is Sunday. It is April 20th, 2008. Our message this morning is called The Bombing Campaign. We're in kind of a uh, spiritual warfare theme. Wednesday night we talked about our defense program. And tonight we're going to talk about the bombing campaign, a style of air warfare. Y'all going to wake up for me? How about that? Thank you. Thank you. Air warfare, that's something you want to learn about? You can't be a spiritual pacifist. You can decide not to take up arms. You can do all kinds of things, but you cannot be a spiritual pacifist. We're in what the Bible calls a great war. It didn't say that if you choose to be in it, you're in it. It didn't say that you get voted or drafted or you go out and join. You simply are in it. You were born into it. With that in mind, let's pick up in Daniel 10. I don't usually do this, but this morning is a message that you can outline if you choose to do so. There'll be four distinct parts to it. The first is pray through delay. The second is don't shut up or give up. The third is an easy thing. And the last is thumbs up. You'll find each one of those things today and it'll mean something by the end. You ready for Daniel 10? The first one is pray through delay. The second is the theme, wear it out. But I wrote down, shut up, don't shut up or give up. The third is called an easy thing. And the fourth is thumbs up. If I'd had a little more time, I'd have put them all in the bulletin, but you should read the pastor's corner this morning in the bulletin. It'll bless you. You ready for Daniel 10? Beth, are you ready for Daniel 10? If Beth's ready, then we can go. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. (laughs) Daniel is a name given to him by God, a Hebrew name, a name of profound blessing. And he was renamed after a foreign god. But that didn't slow him down. Friends, it doesn't matter what people call you. God has got a name for you, a name based on your reputation, a name based on your function in life, and it does not matter what people call you. I have been called many things, some of which are not repeatable from this pulpit, but that's not how the God of the universe sees me. They can call him whatever they want. God calls his name Daniel. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. Can you say that with me? A great war war. Daniel got a revelation about a great war. He is living during the Persian Empire. Several times already in the book of Daniel, he has had a profound revelation, one at the cost of his very life. People would kill him if he didn't get the revelation right. And the revelation concerned Babylon being succeeded by the Medes and then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Roman Empire. And the Medes and the Persians happened so quickly, they called it the Medo-Persian Empire. And this was a repeating thing over and over and over. And Daniel has dropped upon him another revelation about a great war. And he's already seen Babylon's rise and Babylon's fall. He's already seen the Persian Empire, or rather the Medo, the Medes Empire rise under Darius and now then pushed out by the Persian Empire and we're under the reign of Cyrus. So in Daniel's own lifetime, when God lays out for him the eschatological future, the whole end times, he is already seeing parts of it progress. As he's seeing this, this revelation drops upon him and he is profoundly disturbed. Not disturbed in a bad way, but disturbed because he's, he's realizing what a heavy subject this is. And he gets a revelation, the Bible says, is about a great war. In the second verse, At that time, I, Daniel, mourned 
for three weeks. Why would you mourn if you know that the end of the matter is the kingdom of God established on earth? Why would you be mourning? He's mourning because he sees what all has to happen for that to occur. And much of it involves the suffering of God's people. Saints, the New Testament tells us not to act as if something strange is occurring when we suffer. That our brothers around the world are enduring the same kind of treatment. It has never been strange, but it is okay to grieve over it. It is okay to intervene and ask God to, to move on your behalf. He is mourning. And it says he mourned for three weeks. All right, now I'm not a mathematician, but how long is three weeks? 21 days. We're talking about a time period of 21 days. Remember that. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. He neglected all of his physical needs because he was disturbed in his spirit about something. For 21 days, the man laid aside all voices from the flesh because he needed to hear from God. Have you ever been in a place where you were struggling, where you knew that you needed to hear from God? Something gripped you so profoundly that you went to the throne? Can you imagine 21 days? I fasted for nine days one time and almost died. Not really. Not really, not at all. In fact, it's amazing how much fat you can pack on a body and how long it will last you. There is nothing profoundly spiritual about fasting. And it's funny, when you talk with people, you hear little bits and pieces jump out of their mouths. And if one fasted an hour, the other fasted three hours. And pretty soon you have a fairly carnal competition that really is about a hunger strike. The kind of fasting that God seems to honor by the way, my nine-day fast was a joke. It was a joke. My misunderstanding was that in some way not eating moved God's heart. That's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. The kind of fasting that God honors, the kind that moves His heart, is when you do without so that others can have something. When you neglect something in your life to pursue what is important. Daniel has neglected everything in his life because this revelation was so powerful upon him, he had to know what it meant. That's the kind of thing that God honors. Watch this. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. That's a pretty impressive guy, isn't it? I mean, when you look in the mirror, that's not necessarily what you see, is it? I mean, some of you see a body perfectly chiseled out of bronze, a bunch of bronze Adonises out there. But some of us don't. You could see how this could be an intimidating setting. If you're praying, you've been praying for 21 days, and somebody shows up, and their eyes are glowing with fire, and their face looks like lightning, and their voice sounds like a multitude. That could get your attention, couldn't it? Yeah, I thought so. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. They didn't even see what Daniel saw and they ran and hid. There must have been some powerful feeling there in the room. We find out that our God is responsive to us when we lay aside everything but Him. The very first command that He gave His people was that you shall have no other gods beside, alongside, or instead of Him. 
And Daniel has moved everything else in his life aside because he needed fellowship with his God. Think, that is a place to be. In our midst, God is giving people dreams. He's giving people visions. The reason that these things occur is because God is drawing us to Him. He wants us to lay aside things that would burden us, things that would distract us, and grab hold of Him. One of the words that came forth today was kind of swallowed up in the others. It was God does not move through shame. God does not move through your condemnation. And it's true, He doesn't. Sometimes what needs to be laid aside is not the television. It's not some joy of the flesh. Sometimes it's the endless beating of yourself over the things you don't get right. I want you to hear what this guy says to Daniel. And he is a man just like us. A regular human being just like us. He had to eat. He had to go to the bathroom. He had to cry. He, when he hit his finger with a hammer, he probably hurt just like us. And listen what this awesome angel says about him. Verse 8, So I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. He's slain in the spirit. Listen to this though. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, When is the last time you looked in the mirror and saw a human being that you believed God highly esteemed? Friends, sometimes what we have to set aside that is an idol competing with the love and affection of God is your own view of yourself. One of the words that came forth today couldn't have been more right on. Somebody politely said, is is it all right? How do I do this? Uh, I mean, my voice is not very loud. I said, it's okay. The room's not very big prophesied and nailed it. That couldn't be more right. Sometimes what is holding us back is that we are tiny in our own eyes. When God breaks through to show up, one of His messengers shows up to speak to Daniel. Isn't it strange that the very first words are you who are highly esteemed? Saints, the Word says that God delights in giving us the kingdom. If you really believe in this thing that says that Jesus' life was a substitute and a sacrifice for yours. When God looks at you, what He sees is Jesus. When you wear the term Christian, it means that you are part of the Anointed One. What part of Jesus' body do you think God hates? What part do you think He dislikes or would like to lop off or cut off? We need to refuse to dwell in that area. There is an appropriate level of conviction that will come. And if you don't hear it in my preaching, you don't listen. What there should not be is a condemnation that keeps you from succeeding because you don't believe God is with you. God is with you when you are with Him. The Word says it. Are you getting with Him this morning? Then He's with you. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up. For I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Friends, when God says stand up, your knees may knock together and you may be trembling with fear. But don't you let fear stop you from doing what God has called you to do. I've been scared most days of my life, but it will not dominate me. I will not back up. I will not stop because of my own inadequacies. Do you know why? 
The Word says He has made me confident. Saints, does it say that about me only or does it say it about you? What can you not do in Christ? We say the Scriptures, we put them on our cars. I can do all things through Christ Jesus that strengthens me as long as He doesn't ask anything of me. Saints, this is not one of those scenarios where we get together and we just feel warm, fuzzy feelings and do nothing but say bless you and bless you. That is not what this church is. This church is a place where you can be equipped to do the work God's called you to do. And many of you are flourishing in it. And you're excited and I can see life in you that I haven't seen in the whole time that I've known you. And this is an exciting time. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. The empty seats around you are the possibility that another life will be there and changed. And it's not my job to do it. It's not even, in some ways, the King of Kings' job to do it. Your mind does not do everything. It commissions your hands and feet to act on its behalf. And the King of Kings has commissioned you. Every seat around you needs to be filled with somebody that has seen God esteems you. Not because you're perfect, but because you trust in Him. This man laid aside everything. He's in the royal court and he laid aside everything because he wanted to know what his God thought of him. He wanted to know what his God had to say about this great war. And he cared what was happening. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. Come on, saints, y'all got to listen here. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding, your words were heard. How many days have passed? Three weeks, 21 days. God heard him on the first day and acted on his behalf. This Sunday school theology of God just does everything by the snap of the fingers is wrong, saints. He takes centuries to work things out sometimes. He is still renovating the creation and he started with the first man. He does not let you order at one window and pick up at the next. Sometimes there is struggle involved. In our understanding of God's omnipotence, we have successfully rendered ourselves inactive. Well, God can do anything. I believe God can do anything. Yes, yes, He can. But sometimes it requires you to stand and fight. Why did this guy not get his answer on the first day? Well, maybe God just didn't feel like doing it. That's not what this text says. You read real carefully. Strip away the churchy ideas for a minute and listen. Engage the text and see if you don't see a great war going on. Listen to this. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. There are some commentaries out there that think that this is an earthly ruler. If it was the prince of the Persian kingdom, he would have named him by name Cyrus. He did it already once in the chapter. We are not speaking of an earthly kingdom resisting this guy whose face is like lightning and whose eyes are like fire. We find out that there are kingdoms of light and kingdoms of darkness. And these things are fighting with an angel coming from God resisted him. Hear this, verse 13. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 
21 days. An angel sent from God in response to a man's prayer resisted 21 days. Well, what happens if on the second day Daniel says, God doesn't care? What about if it was the fifth day? How many times have you sown a seed in complete faith? I trust you, God. I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. And then by the third day, you, he didn't do it. He gave up. He, he didn't do it. God must. I mean, he cares about Bob, but he don't care about me. How many times have we done things like that? This man hung in there until he got what he was after, but you need to hear this. The revelation is about a great war. The first great war of our modern time we call World War One. Friend, this is a war that stretches into the world and the heavens. And it's been going on a long time. And there is resistance. Listen to what happens. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Oh, I love that. Who knows who Michael is? He's an archangel. He's the prince who watches over God's people. And he is just one of the chief princes. We don't know not one other's name. The songs tell us Gabriel is. But that's just churchiology. The Bible does not mention not one other name. But Michael's name means he who is like God, and he is just one of them. An angel is bringing a message to Daniel concerning a powerful revelation. And some other power called the prince of Persia resists him. And Michael, one of God's chief princes, comes to his aid. That sounds an awful lot like a battle, doesn't it? If Nick and I are squared off in mortal combat and I simply cannot get to Brad, which is my goal, and Matt has to come and help me. Doesn't that sound like warfare? And more than that, evenly matched warfare? In the end, we know that God prevails over all. In the end, we know that there is one God above everything else, but this whole Bible is about subduing a, a resisting force. The whole Bible is about putting down a rebellion. Sometimes in our... Sunday school hymnology that we teach our kids. We've made this so simple we forget there is a life and death battle going on. Well, I prayed and I just didn't see. Pray harder. Pray longer. Quit. Don't give up. God esteems us. But what does the devil tell you the moment that you pray and don't see it? It's because there's sand in your life. It's because you're inadequate. It's because you're a bad Christian. It's because you don't believe enough. Those are all the reasons that he is getting kicked out of the planet. Those are none of the reasons that your prayer has not been manifest before your eyes. It's because there is an enemy who wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy the hope of God in your life. If you get anything, friends, it's that whether trembling or excited, you stand and you wait. I was detained there with the king of Persia. A heavenly angel detained by the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face towards the ground and was speechless. How many of you thought of Daniel as just this power of strength? Already three times he's fallen on his face here. He can't seem to get his knees to work right. 
He's a regular guy, just like anybody in this room. But we're called to do extraordinary or supernatural things. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face towards the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. Look how different Daniel's view of himself is than what they tell him. He keeps saying, I'm speechless and I'm helpless. And they keep saying, you are esteemed. I'm speechless, I'm helpless. You are esteemed. You will find out that in God's economy, He takes men like Moses, men like Daniel, men like Noah, and when they think they are helpless, they find themselves filled with power. Saints, sometimes we are our own worst enemy. And when you look in the mirror, what you see staring back at you is an enemy to you. Because we're not called to walk by our natural sight. We are called by the God of the universe to believe what He says whether you see it or not. We need to look into the mirror and realize that God of the universe has filled us with power. Why? So that you can be on an ego trip? So that you can walk around arrogant? Not at all. So that you can continue in your humility, powerfully inspired, boldly acting, doing what no one else around you will do because they are mere men and you are a supernatural man. This is the kingdom walk. This is how the kingdom is in you. It's how you're walking in the kingdom while others around you are walking in a different kingdom. It's what separates the wheat from the chaff. It's the Spirit of God. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man highly esteemed, he said. Now, I read this next line for years and didn't get it because I didn't understand the Hebrew background. Get this. O man highly esteemed, he said, peace, be strong now, be strong. This angel is literally looking at somebody made in the image of God and has proclaimed to him already about three times that he's highly esteemed. And what is Daniel doing? He's talking about what he can't do. He can't breathe and his knees are trembling. Can you empathize with him? Uh, forgive me because I did not grow up in a uh, museum on polished floors. So I don't know how you should say this, but I'm going to tell you how I know to say it. Daniel is throwing a hissy fit. He's a righteous man, but he is right there saying, I can't, I can't, I'm overcome, I don't know what to do. And this angel looks at him and says, Shalom! It means you right now get in right standing with God. You right now get in line with God's authority from heaven on down to earth. I said, be strong. It didn't matter whether he felt strong. It didn't matter whether he felt at peace or not. The angel spoke into his life, shalom, now. The reason there's an explanation point there is because in the original language, the rhyme and meter of the passage indicates this came with force. Sometimes, saints, when your knees are trembling... Sometimes when it feels like everything's crumbling around you and you cannot make it, what you need to do is look at your very life and say, peace now, and then do it. I was praying one time for joy. I felt down. Wow, who doesn't? I'm sitting there moping. 
And I began to pray, Lord, pour out Your joy upon me. God is my witness. He said, act joyful. I got up and began to dance around my little apartment. I had been married about two weeks in a little studio flat, two, three o'clock in the morning, and woke up my neighbors. But I was joyful. And I learned something that day. We can ask God to do for us what He's already done, or we can begin to walk in what He's already done. And I choose to take what He's given me. This angel looked at him and said, Shalom. And you know what? From this point forward, we see Daniel acting like a man called of God. Now, I'm not picking on Daniel before that. I'm probably a thousand times weaker than him. But when somebody speaks this word into your life and you choose to believe it, it becomes real. It becomes real. Ask for and you've received. Now, you can take that and make some weird doctrine that gives you Cadillacs and Mercedes out of it if you want to be devilish. But what it's teaching is that a true principle from God spoken into your life that you grab hold of has power. It has power, saints. We do not have to walk out of this building the way we walked in. Right now, you can receive shalom. And He does. Hallelujah. O man highly esteemed, He said, Peace, be strong now. Be strong. Not be strong tomorrow. Not be strong in the day when you need it. Be strong now. Right now, we can decide to be stronger than we were. Right now, we can decide to have God's sense of unity with the creation, with us, with our fellow man right now. I refuse to walk around without it anymore. Have you noticed that since we built this building, since we started with all of our equipment and everything, Shalom has tried to evade us. Well, I'm seeking it. I'm pursuing it. I'm overtaking it and grabbing hold of it because it belongs to me. Say that, saints. It belongs to me. You don't have to let it go anymore. Somebody in traffic cannot take it from you. Somebody on the phone cannot take it from you. It belongs to you. Don't let it go anymore. Don't let something at work steal what God has given you. Say no. Say no. You think I'm going to let somebody walk in my house and carry off one of my kids? It's not going to happen. It is not going to happen over my dead or live body. Not going to happen. Why would we let the devil steal from us things God Himself has given? It's just as important as our kids. This angel looked at him and said, Peace! Be strong now! When he spoke to me, I was strengthened. Imagine that! When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. That's the next kingdom. That's the, the kingdom that is right now fighting, stirring above their heads. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. That's the third kingdom that is waiting. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Wow, you mean even in the heavens there's a remnant in the battle? Hmm. Maybe what's on earth is just a mere reflection of what is going on there. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. <laughs> I don't have time to teach on this, and others have made this a weird thing, so I'm scared to even get into it. But apparently these angels were assigned to certain kingdoms in geographical areas. And apparently they fought to make sure God's will was accomplished on the earth. Because it looks to me like the angel is standing with the kingdom that God said should rule now, holding off some power in the heavenlies 
that wants to take it from him, and it is not time. Don't we see that same language in the book of Thessalonians? Now you know what holds him back until he is taken out of the way? Unless you've bought into the ridiculous fairy tale that men teach to sell books. They say it's the church. The church has never held back any of these spiritual powers. God said they would happen. Our job is to intercede on the earth and the angels fight in the heavens. There is a bombing campaign we need to learn about. Daniel set his face to pray for 21 days. He is calling in the heavy artillery. He is calling out his God and the angels are moving. And they are moving in a medium that we call the air. The Bible sometimes calls it the heavenly. He is doing air warfare while he is firmly planted upon the earth, his knees on the ground. What did it require for him to do it? For him to turn his face towards God and neglect other things. He said, well, then we'll neglect other things. It won't work. Aestheticism's not worth that. won't work. You can go be a monk. That will get you nothing with God. You must turn your face towards God, and in that process, it causes you to neglect other things. Neglecting other things in and of themselves is nothing but torturing the flesh. I've done it. It does not work. I have sat, drank a glass of wine, smoked a cigar, prayed for somebody that got healed of cancer. Happened right then. I've had others that I didn't eat, didn't drink anything except water for nine days, still had cancer, still had the surgery. It is not about our neglecting the flesh. That's not what it's about. It's about turning your face towards heaven and then everything else fall where it may. Heaven is what is important to you and then God's will gets done on the earth. I've learned this the hard way and I'm trying to impart it to you. There are all kinds of ideas about what holiness is. Holiness is putting the kingdom before everything else in your life. Jesus seemed to eat and enjoy it. You study really, really hard and you'll find out he drank things and enjoyed that. People said ugly things about it and they were liars. They were liars. But Jesus did not walk around in some kind of torturing his flesh mentality. He enjoyed the creation and others did it with him. And he was 100% holy. I'm not trying to teach you that you need to go out and fast for 21 days. I'm telling you, you put the kingdom first in your life And if what results from that is a fast, then God bless it for you. I'm not doing it unless Jesus tells me to. It's in the church where they declared a fast, and I thought, how does that work? Well, if you're all submitted, what if he was wrong? Because I like to eat. I did it anyway. Because God will work through all kinds of scenarios. I was mostly just hungry and had headaches, though. What I want you to get from the first section was that we need to learn to pray through delay. There are all kinds of things that will pop up in your life to keep you from doing God's will. It could even be that the powers in the heavenlies have aligned themselves to keep something from manifesting in your life. And I need you to think about that for a minute. What they surely must be saying is we cannot stop this. We can't stop it. But if we can slow it down, the pansy Christians will give up. We can't stop God. We know it. But if we can just hold it back a little bit, they'll quit. They do it every time. If we can just delay it one more minute, they'll quit. They'll quit. And so many times they were right. No more, saints. No more. Stand fast. Strengthen your feeble knees. Allow shalom to enter your life. Don't throw hissy fits when problems come. Be a man. Be a woman of God. Stand, receive strength and say, I will not be shaken because my God is unshakable. And when your flesh won't cooperate, speak to it. Tell it to get in line with the will of God. It works. 
those of you that are surrounded by a church and loving families, you be thankful for that because this is our function. When my wife is having a difficult time, my job as the husband is to correctly proclaim the Word of God and help her stand in it. When our children are having a difficult time, our job together is to do that. When I am having a difficult time, your job is to do that with me. This is how the body of Christ strengthens each other, spurring one another on, iron sharpening iron, all of those good things. It occurs when we accept nothing less than God's best for each other and for ourselves. There are some that have floated away, and I get it. I understand. They float away because we expect God's best in all of our lives, and they're not willing to fight for it. I understand. I pray that wherever people go, they're going because they're chasing God's best. If that's not the case, well, then let's call it what it is. They're just not serious about God yet. You know how you get serious about God? You get tired of losing in this great war. You get tired of having your head handed to you in a basket. You get tired of your life disintegrating all around you. And after you get through blaming everyone else, at the end of however long the trial lasts, you realize you were the problem. Let's, friends, all submit to the power of God. When we put Him first, everything else second, we have a sustained bombing campaign. We are in active warfare with the enemy. Turn with me to Luke 18. Man, the time is going. That was only supposed to take a few minutes. Let's just relax and believe that God will give us what we need as we need it. Pray through delay, saints. If you learn nothing from Daniel, it's that there are unseen forces at work. And something on the earth depends upon you. Or it would not be necessary that we pray. Y'all in Luke 18? Luke 18. First verse. Then Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Does anybody know what that says in the original Greek? Dead silence in the room. What this says in the original Greek is to show them that they should always pray and not give up. That's why it's translated that way in your English Bible. This is not complicated. He taught them a parable and it is no more mystical, no more difficult than telling us pray and don't give up. Sometimes preachers find special delight in making the Word so incredibly complicated that it is not possible for anybody to understand except them. This is as plain as could possibly be. So as we read this, what is it teaching us? To pray and not give up. That's what it's teaching us. He said in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. That's funny because the qualities that you look for in a judge are somebody who fears God and somebody who cares about men. Fear of God speaks of a sense of justice, a sense of righteousness. What does care about men speak of? Compassion. You want a judge who has a sense of righteousness, a sense of justice, and is compassionate about human beings. This means that he can render the right judgments. Can we all agree to that? So you could say it's kind of a humorous story almost that Jesus begins to tell. If we're going to pick a judge who has none of the qualities that a judge should have, that could almost be funny in the sense that it's ironic. In a certain town, 
there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea. A widow at this time is about the lowest member of society. She usually doesn't have a way to support herself. She's dependent upon the generosity of others. She's not going to hold political office. She's not going to hold social standing. So we have a judge who doesn't care about the things a judge should care about and an insignificant person. Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. We have a judge who's wicked, a judge who does not possess justice or compassion. And we have the lowest member of society beckoning him. And he eventually does what is right for her because he's worn out with her coming. That is to be contrasted with what comes after this. And as silly as that was, it is supposed to be so clear that this is the color black that the next color white looks that much brighter. You ever seen on paint? One says pure white. The next says ultra white. Another says pure ultra brilliant white. What are they trying to say? They're white. Amen? This is one of those parables that is fairly simple. There is a wicked judge who does what is right because he's being pestered. Contrast that with this. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? The contrasts are a wicked judge versus the righteous judge of the universe. The contrast is the lowest member of society versus the judge's own chosen ones. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice quickly. Before we read that, read the next verse, I want you to get something. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Let me read to you Psalm 116. Keep your finger here because we're coming back to that. I want to help you make this contrast. The Jewish view of God comes from one, Psalm 116. Look at verse 5. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Not like the unjust judge. He's gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, He saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Apparently, there should be a certain sense of shalom, of peace, in our times of greatest need because we can rest in the fact that we're not widows in God's economy. We're the chosen ones. And He's not an unjust judge. He's the righteous judge of all the earth. And He said that He would act on our behalf quickly. Have you ever thought maybe God just had a different timetable than you did? Because He says things are soon that don't seem soon. He says He'll do something quickly that does not seem quickly. Saints, there is great resistance. Everything that God does on the earth is resisted by an evil power. And God is greater. He's greater beyond belief. And yet, the evil power still resists. You know what His favorite tool is? Us. Disobedient human beings. Because when God wants to split the Red Sea, He uses a man to do it. When God wants to heal a Syrian of leprosy, He uses a man to do it. We are God's hands and feet on the earth. But how do you feel 
When your mind tells your body to do something and the body says, no, you didn't say it, you feel paralyzed. We need to be active in this great war. There are lives that are at stake. We're supposed to be engaged in air warfare. Now, your body may break down. It may not be obedient to your will anymore. But something that is incapable of being done to you is the enemy cannot crush your spirit. He cannot take from you your ability to communicate with God, to get into God's presence. The feeling that we got in worship, we can walk around with that all of the time. And it brings with it a sense of shalom and clarity of purpose. You're here to destroy the enemy's work. We need to be about that. Jesus asks a very important question at the end of this. It's at the end of Luke 18, the 8th verse. It says, However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? What a strange thing. We're talking about prayer. We're talking about widows and unjust judges. And now all of a sudden He says, When I return, will I find faith on the earth? Have you ever considered that the length of time that we bring something up to God about and wait to see it done is indicative of our trust in Him? See, something lingers, but you wait for it. What does that mean? You believe that it was actually sent. You ever had somebody tell you the check's in the mail? Whether or not you go check the mailbox is a direct reflection of what you think about their character. If you don't bother, you knew they were lying. If you go out and check it every day eagerly, it's because you know that they're trustworthy and true. And if you don't see it on the first day and don't see it on the second day and don't see it in a week, what do you say? It got delayed in the mail. But you don't consider that they're liars because you know their character is true. Think about that as it relates to prayer, saints. When we pray for something and we don't see it, there are two options. Either the man who told us is a liar or it got delayed in the mail. So, well, how do things get delayed for God? We just read about it in Daniel. There is air warfare going on. And you know what? Some of it depends upon you. It was as Daniel began to intercede that the angel got help and things happened on the earth. How about that? Saints, when you pray, the angels move. Hebrews says that they are spirits ministering to the heirs of salvation. Do you know who the heirs of salvation are? You. They serve you. Every time you see a man prostrate himself before an angel, the angel says, get up. Every time. They're not made to receive our worship unless you're in the Roman church (coughs) where they venerate all kinds of things. We don't call it worship, but they'll just venerate it. Looks like worship, smells like worship, sounds like worship, but it's called veneration. You got me. If it looks like a duck, smells like a duck, quacks like a duck, I think it might be a duck. Angels move when we pray, saints. They move when we pray. So does that make a prayer meeting boring? Close your eyes and envision what happens when you're praying. Will the Son of Man find trust in you when He returns? Well, what would we define trust as in this? Are you anxiously awaiting the things that He's told you would happen and talking to Him about it and praying and conversing with Him? A sustained bombing campaign. Our third section today is in 2 Kings. Is there anybody in here that doubts that God has very great and precious promises in our lives? 
If there is, raise your hand. We'll stop the service and we'll minister to you. Good, we can continue with our service. As great and precious promises for all of you. None of you disputed it. He has great and precious promises for us. Did you know that some of those great and precious promises depend upon your ability to trust Him? Watch this. We're living now in a time in Israel's history where Ahab is no longer reigning. And the prophet Elijah is no longer calling down fire from heaven. We have moved on to the next generation. So now what we have is a king in Israel named Joram. Joram, the king of the northern tribes, the ten tribes to the north. Then we have a king in the southern part of Israel, the king over Judah, and his name is Jehoshaphat. The difference between these two men is profound. Joram is the son of Ahab. Ahab was a wicked man. Wicked men produce wicked children most of the time. Lest the life-changing power of God comes in their life. And then we have a chance to change for a thousand generations. Say amen to that, huh, bride? It got you a husband. Mm-hmm. Jehoshaphat's father was Asa. And Asa was a righteous man. Stumbled a little bit in his life, but was a righteous man. Now what happens is Joram is... Very concerned about everybody paying tribute to him. And there's a king of Moab. And the king of Moab's name is Misha. And Misha raised sheep. And so, Joram wants a certain amount of wool for his share of tribute. He wants a certain amount of sheep as a share of tribute. And when Joram doesn't get it, he's mad. You ever met a worldly person that was mad when he didn't get what he wanted? Never. So he calls... Somebody who he's loosely affiliated with. I mean, after all, we were all once kingdom. I know we're divided now. Been divided for four monarchies. But, hey, Jehoshaphat, you think you could help me with this? I'd like to go whip up on this guy. He owes me some money. Jehoshaphat evidently walking in the presence of God since God's hand at work in this. One man's motive may be pure. And another man's motive may be impure. And yet God's work can still be done. If that weren't true, not a church anywhere would make it. You ever looked at something and seen some flaw in it and said, oh, well, God can't use that? I do it all the time. Some would say I do it about the Romanism. I think they're wrong, but some would say that. That's okay. There's room for diversity in the body. These men have mixed motives. But what's clear is they're going to fight with Misha. Now, along the way, they need to go through a country called Edom. So they pick up the king of Edom, and I have no idea what his name is because it's not mentioned in the Bible. It was not apparently important. And on their way, after traveling for seven days, Joram, the wicked king of the north, Jehoshaphat, the righteous king of the south, run out of water. Who do you think begins to whine? The wicked king of the north, Joram. So we're going to pick up in the 11th verse. Oh, I should have told you that, huh? 2 Kings 3, the 11th verse. The long preamble was to keep us from reading the first 10 verses. We'll leave it up to you to find out which would have been quicker. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? The righteous king of the south turns to what he knows best. The wicked king of the north turned to what he knew best. Whining. Joram begins to whine. There's no water. Jehoshaphat says, Wait. We have a God we can call on. Isn't there a prophet in these parts? An officer of the king of Israel answered, 
Isn't it interesting that the king of the north doesn't answer? One of his underlings does. Elijah, that's Elijah's successor, son of Shaphat is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel, that's Joram, and Jehoshaphat and king of Edom went to him. Elijah said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? Now, if you don't understand the difference between the northern and the southern kingdom, this could be confusing. Elisha recognizes the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, as a righteous man. He looks at the king of Israel, Joram, somebody who is broken off, not following the Davidic covenant, worshiping in the wrong places and worshiping the wrong gods, and he says, what do you and I have to do with each other? You're of the wrong kingdom, dude. You're of the kingdom of darkness. I'm of the kingdom of light. What are we doing here? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three, three kings together to hand us over to Moab. He said, no, 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 no. I think it's your God who's got me in trouble here. Elijah said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I did not have, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. You find out the men of God speak truth. Some say it's in love and some would say, no, it's not. I think this is the best thing that Joram could possibly hear. If God does want to hand you over, I wouldn't even talk to you because of your wickedness. There are some people we're not supposed to associate with, but that's not our point. The point here is all these men need to hear from God. Elisha needs to hear from God. Why? Because they're all looking at him for an answer and he cares about some of them there. The men need to hear from God. Why? Because they're all convinced that God's at work in this. Some think God's at work for a pure motive. Others think God is at work for an impure motive. But they're all believing that God's at work in their midst. So they need to hear from God. What do they do? <coughs> they go get a harpist. You find out that worship is powerful, saints. This guy is a prophet. Elijah is a prophet unlike any other mentioned in the Bible. And he needs a harpist to come forth because he is in mixed company. There are people in his presence that hate God and people who love God, and that's a confusing setting. So he worships right in the middle of it. One of the steps in air warfare is when you find yourself in mixed company, you better get your praise on. You better start to worship. You better start to learn to hear from God in a crowded room or else the devil will make sure that you are always in a crowded room. It is wonderful to get on a mountaintop alone and hear from God. It is a wonderful thing and I've done it. But the battle is not on the mountaintop. It's in the valley. You've got to hear from Him there too. Learn to worship during difficult times. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. Would you say that no water is a pretty big problem for an enemy? For an army rather? That's a pretty big problem, isn't it? When you don't have water, that's, that could be difficult, especially after seven days. And he said, this is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your animals will drink. You might take out a pen and mark this next verse. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. Sometimes we sit and because of mixed company, have you ever told somebody who was not a believer about a problem in your life? 
And now every time you see them, that's what they ask about and they seem to relish in the fact that your problems are so big? When we begin to develop an attitude that worships God, proclaims His greatness rather than whining, and then we stand with the attitude that says, whatever it is, whatever it is, it is an easy thing for my God. Miracles happen. Others can look and cry and fall on the ground and say, wah, 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 it's not going to work. But when we stand and say, I choose to worship the King of the universe and nothing is too difficult for Him, we've paved the way for a miracle. Will the miracle always come? No, but if not, I am still not going to bow to you, Nebuchadnezzar. Elijah calls for a harpist. He changes the environment they're in from one of mixed company and whining to praise. And God speaks and says, this problem that is so hard for y'all is easy for me. Come on, if that don't minister to you, I don't know what we could tell you that would minister. Maybe you should go be a Buddhist. Our problems are an easy thing for God. And yet for us, we get in a little hissy and we get all upset and nervous and our knees knock together and we tremble because it's so difficult and the angel has to speak and say, Peace! Because when you get a sense that everything is alright if you're under God's authority, it paves the way for a miracle. How many times has God ever moved in your life while you were totally ticked off? Doesn't happen very often. We have to figure out how to regain a little composure and say... Nothing's too difficult for you. I'm going to worship you in the middle of our problems. And you know what happens? We find out it is such an easy thing for God. I've got to read you this next couple of verses just because it's too good, even though I'm running out of time. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. Who's going to get handed over? Moab. We're not going to do the original language thing again. I can only run that joke so many times. Is it pretty clear that Moab's going to get handed over? Pretty clear, right? Hear how clear he gets. You will overthrow every fortified city, every major town. You will cut down every tree and stop up all the springs and ruin every good field. Can you say every? Every. He described everything that made Moab Moab and said, you will tear it all up, every bit of it. That sounds like complete, utter, ultimate victory, doesn't it? So God says this is an easy thing. I'm going to give you your water and I'm going to give you Moab and everything in it. Everything in it. That's a pretty sure promise, isn't it? What do you think it might depend on? The people doing what God says to do. We serve a God who says, I'm going to give you the promised land. Now He puts a sword in your hand and says, praise me and go whip all them. And if you don't do it, it doesn't get done because you are His hands and feet, but it's His will to do it. Skip down to verse 24. By the way, a miracle has happened. God brought in water. The Moabites said, oh my goodness, they're slaughtering each other. Let us run in haphazardly and be destroyed by them. And God begins to do it. The Moabites saw water filling the ditches in the land of Edom, which means red. To them, it looked like blood. And so they rushed in thinking that everybody had slaughtered everybody, that the kings who really didn't like each other very much probably got in a fight. And while they're rushing in haphazardly, Israel begins to whip up on them 
Much like George St. Pierre did to Matt Sarah last night. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. Verse 25. They destroyed the town. Good. God said they would. And each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up the spring. Good. God said they should. And cut down every good tree. Only Kir herself was left with its stones in place. Well, that's a little problem, isn't it? God said every, didn't he? God said every, the Word said every, and I had you repeat every. But the armed men with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well. Well, they were kind of obedient. God didn't tell them to attack it, though. He told them to totally decimate it. Now watch. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Why did they fail? Why did Moab fail? Because God said He was going to hand over Moab. Go get them, Israel. Go get them. Jehoshaphat's out there. He's a righteous man. Elijah's out there. He's heard from God. He's a righteous man. Joram's not so righteous. But he's out there doing what God said to do. And it is going well, isn't it? Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was so great, they withdrew and returned to their own land. God said, I'm going to hand Moab over to you. He said, every town, every village, every spring, every field. And they left without getting all of that done. you know why? Because the enemy was more dedicated to his task than the people of God were to theirs. We cannot let this be, saints. There is a great war going on, one about which Daniel got a revelation. And what we learn from it is we need to be at peace in the middle of the war. While we are at peace, we are to be strengthened. And we do not give up until we get what we're after. You pray through delay. You wear out your knees in prayer, not giving up and not shutting up until you get what you're after. Tenacious Christians. Because whatever God has said to do is an easy thing for God if we're just obedient. Do you think God could have handed over Moab to them? You know what was required of them? To stay in the battle. But instead, they got tired and went home. You be honest. Most of the sin that occurs in your life occurs when your flesh is tired. Snap at your wife because you're tired. But we're not supposed to be ruled by our flesh. We're supposed to be ruled by the Spirit of God. If we can be at peace during our difficult times with God, we'll be strengthened with power from on high. i got one more section to give you, and we're going to do it quick. Go to Judges. Not so quick that you don't get it, though. i got to find it. Uh, let's go to Judges 1. From Daniel, we learn that we pray through delays. God's at work, we just can't see it. From Luke, we find out that for Jesus to see that we trust Him, we cannot give up in prayer. From the story in 2 Kings, we learn that it is an easy thing for God to deliver the enemy into our hands if we just won't quit. Now, we come to thumbs up. First chapter in Judges. After the death of Joshua... The Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? Why did the Israelites want to fight the Canaanites? Because God said so. 
He said, I'm going to give you the promised land. Woo! You want the land with milk and honey? Yes, Lord, we want it. Good, here's the sword. Go take it. Did God give it to them or did they take it? Both is true. They could only take it because God said, I'm giving it to you. All of our strength amounts to nothing. Hearing from God and being strong in His mighty power amounts to everything. Well, how do you know the difference? One is born from your faith towards heaven, stripping away everything else, and the other is born from your eyes on yourself and ignoring heaven. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. When they want to know who should lead the way in the fight, it's much like the story about Elijah. Praise is to go forth. Every battle that you will ever face in your life is won or lost in your ability to praise. As soon as those points on the side of your face that when they point towards heaven we call a smile and when they point towards hell we call a frown, as soon as you begin to frown, joy starts to escape your body and strength starts to leave your life. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Praise needs to precede everything that we do. It needs to be a part of everything that we do. You're having a horrible day. You've just hit your finger with a hammer. If you can figure out how to praise God in that situation, it will quickly turn from a horrible day into a day that the Lord has made that you can rejoice in. Have you not experienced that in your life? How many times have you walked into church and wanted to be anywhere else, but by the end of the service, you're pretty excited about Jesus again? We shouldn't need a church service to do that. It's wonderful that we have it. I'm glad that we get it. But if you didn't get to go to church this month because somebody was trying to hurt us and we were all underground, how long could you maintain what you have? It's won or lost in praise. I'm a preacher, but I think the most important thing we do is praise and worship by far. You know why? I trust that you can read so you can get what I'm giving you. But guys like me have a hard time praising without brothers and sisters around. I can't seem to carry the tune. And yet I manage when I have to because it's important and I don't want to lose. So Eric will get on his face in a parking lot and sing a cappella if I have to and have quite a few times. And maybe nobody likes it except God, but that makes it more special to him. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, you know what Simeon's name means? It means I hear from God. They're brothers. I want you to get this. Your ability to praise and your ability to hear from God, they are brothers. They are Siamese twins. There is no way for you to separate the two. When Elijah needs to hear from God, he needs to begin to praise. When you begin to praise, you begin to hear from God. This is how it works because when you turn your face towards heaven and other things are stripped away, heaven turns its face towards you. Simon and Judah, the ability to hear from God and the ability to praise are brothers. And they go into warfare together. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites, Perizzites, into their hands and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. 
That Bible is so yucky, isn't it? Adonai. Adonai is a name of God. It means my owner and controller. This guy, we've changed the spelling of his name, although in the original it is very much the same. We like to say Adoni. It's kind of like George Bush could never say Saddam Hussein. He said Saddam. And I kind of liked it. It was almost insulting, wasn't it? This guy likes to be called Adonai. But we're not. We're going to call him Adoni. And Adoni's last name is Bezek, lightning. He is the false god of lightning. Who does that sound like? You know why they cut off his thumbs and his big toes? Because he had done that to 70 kingdoms before him. And he had them eating under his table where he lived. Why would you cut off somebody's thumbs and big toes? Because Leviticus 8 and 14 says, This big thumb and big toe is where you wear the mark of your redemption. Blood. Marked with blood of a sacrifice. And oil. The anointing oil. It's symbolic of anointing. And there is a false god of lightning that wants to cut you off from your anointing. Also in the human kingdom, opposable thumbs. Meet the parents. And big toes are what lets you operate as a human being. The false god of lightning wants to show that you are not anointed and you are something less than what God called you to be. When you can praise God and you can hear from God, you can do to Him what He wants to do to you. You got me? He's got everybody convinced that He is Adonai, but you can show everybody He's Adoni. You've got everybody scared of, oh, well, what the devil did here and what the devil did. Quit praising him. For God, this is an easy thing. Let's cut off his big thumbs. Let's cut off his toes. Let's leave him under our table trying to eat the scraps. That's exactly what these men did. And it was recorded in the book of books so that we would learn a lesson. Maybe it's what Galatians 6, 9 says. Do not grow weary and lose heart. For at the proper time, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. The most important thing you can learn about a bombing campaign is you don't quit until all the enemy is dead. This is the one kind of warfare you can do from anywhere. It's the one kind of warfare that really does not put your own life in jeopardy. You go out witness to the gangs, you might get shot. You sit at home on your knees interceding for the gangs, nobody's going to shoot you. And both might be just as effective. In this church, we need to raise up men and women who are intercessory prayer warriors because there's a great war going on. And some will have to go into the battle and take every town, every spring, every village, and others will pray for them to do it. There needs to be a bombing campaign. I taught you about our defense program on Wednesday. Now we're moving into offensive weaponry. We need to lay down some bombings in this church. Air warfare. Our services will change. We're going to turn to Romans, uh, Revelation 8 and we close. If you didn't learn something today, you might need to find another church. I love you, but if what God is speaking to me powerfully teaches you nothing, then you are either dead and not in His kingdom, or you're full of what we have already taught you and you need to go somewhere else. I hope neither are true, but I'm willing to accept both. 
I believe that God is directing us in the way that is best for our church. And when I look in most of your eyes, I see excitement because you know that it's true. And you know the Word of God when you hear it. But I don't want a church that is based on membership. I don't want a church that is based on marketing. I want a church that has stripped away everything, turned its face towards heaven, and will not give up Moab. The enemy is shrewd. He's willing to kill his firstborn son on the wall if that's what he needs to do. All we need to do is be equally dedicated. God doesn't ask anything of us except what's good for us. You know in Revelation 8? Look at verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Let's be very clear because I'm not all that smart. This angel has two things, right? He has incense to offer. Those are usually held in a censer. And he has the prayers of the saints. Did y'all get that from that? Or am I just misreading? Okay. Well, Darren says yes. The smoke of the incense together with the prayer of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer that held those things, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The prayers of the saints collected with the incense that is usually associated with prayer and praise, hurled to the earth, brought change upon the earth. Peals of thunder and earthquakes. Saints, when we pray, the heavens move. The first thing we need to know about spiritual warfare is that we have a defense program. And I taught you about that. We don't get into escalating situations that God has not called us into that have to do with defending our honor rather than God. The second thing we need to know is that we can soften the enemy's kingdom simply by prayer. And when we pray... We're going to pray until it shows up. We're going to refuse to quit. We will wear everybody out with our prayer. What God's called us to do is an easy thing for Him. And at the end, we want everybody to see our thumbs and big toes fully intact. We are anointed of God. That's where our strength comes from. Y'all stand to your feet. Let's pray.